0: Welcome to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 70. I'm Liam and I'm here to quickly introduce the last of our two special episodes covering the Victorian Government's Realising the Potential Early Childhood Conference. We were very excited to be invited to go along to this conference and record some interviews. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our last episode, Lisa spoke with Simon Kent from the Victorian Education Department, Jos Nuttall from a and the Australian Catholic University, and consultant, trainer, writer, and researcher, Anne Kennedy. It's well worth going back and listening to. This week, we're bringing you interviews with Andrew Hume, the CEO of Gowrie Victoria, Anthony Saman, presenter, researcher, and head of professional learning organisations, Saman and Slattery, and then a joint interview with Charlene Smith from the Mitchell Institute, Consultant and the President of ECA Victoria Branch, Catherine Hyden, and the author of the Lifting Our Game Report, Professor Deb Brennan. We hope you enjoy part two of our special coverage of the Realising the Potential Conference.
1: And now I'm sitting with the wonderful Andrew Hume from Gowry, um, Victoria, the CEO of Garry Victoria. And I've asked him to talk to us about a specific project that Gary Victoria um, has been doing. I could ask him to talk about his wonderful service that's, you know, built on top of a building and still has outdoor play space, but I won't. I want to talk to you about your work at Broadmeadows.
2: Yeah, great. Thanks, um, Lisa. I'm happy to give you some of the background where it came from. Love to hear it. Um, And I'm always very conscious and slightly squeamish, when we talk about things like this, I'm really talking on behalf of the whole Gowrie team. Um, and the history on this one actually goes back and includes everyone, including the board. Yep. So we became aware of the opportunity to um, run a long day care centre with a sessional kindergarten in Broadmeadows. And um, for your listeners, um, I'll say a little Outside bit about Broadmeadows. Yes, <laughs> it's co located with a primary school, which is really exciting. Um, Broad Meadows is uh, an area that is um, in C for one. It's got um, uh, AEDC results uh, with vulnerability levels at about uh, twice the state average. So it's a complex community and, of course, that community also brings with it some real strength and um, and resilience. Um, for Gowrie, we've been around for about 80 years now. It's a bit actually like going back to... To our roots um so we were really well beyond interested we were really desperate to have an opportunity to work in Broadmeadows. went there for two reasons
1: so is it a new center No, it's
2: been going for about three years and the right. previous operator um but exited yes and the previous yep. operator exited yeah okay so why did you want to go there two reasons one was to hopefully demonstrate high quality in a complex community at a reasonable price you know, That's a almost... big contradiction in terms, isn't it? Doesn't
1: quality cost?
2: Uh, it does. And the reasonable price we're talking about is um, talking about the uh, accessibility to the community, recognising that it is a low socio um, area. You know, it's almost the holy grail, isn't it? High mm. quality, complex community. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm cost. thinking,
1: you know, like with a community like that, it, probably ratios are needed to be a bit higher than reg regulatory anyway, and that costs more money.
2: Yes, uh, that's right. So we flex the operating model um, to provide the support to the team to allow them to be um, successful, and we tap into all of those government funding streams. um, That you uh, can? We can, (laughs) yes, yeah.
1: And so what's happened there? You've been doing it for three years. What's happened?
2: Yeah, two and a half now. And so when we started, it was about uh, uh, 30% um, occupancy. um, And it was a largely new team that came in, deliberately part of that existing Gowrie folk. Um, to bring some continuity. carry
1: wisdom into the <laughs> <laughs>
2: carry wisdom into the thing. But very conscious that that didn't dominate. And about two-thirds of the um, team, from either some of the existing team members or more broadly from the sector, and really wanting to get some context expertise in there who know the community.
1: Yep. And was it a, a – um, like, what was the service like physically –
2: well, it was because it's taking over from someone else. Physically, the bones of the service uh, are really good. The design's terrific. It's got a um, an outdoor learning space um, that doesn't segregate um, age groups. It's only three years old. Uh, one of its best design features is actually the um, kitchen area. Um, is there when you immediately walk in before children and families can actually go to rooms. Because there if there's one thing that unites all people, it is actually food. And True. so some of the work we've done, we have a fabulous cook there, Carol. Hello, Carol, if you're listening, um, who is actually early childhood trained. So that's also deliberate. She's part of the curriculum.
1: Right. Working okay. with the children cool. and families
2: around nutrition.
1: I wonder how many other services have early childhood trained cooks. That's I'm a, not sure. Yeah. Maybe quite an innovative one there. We got lucky. <laughs> And um, have you been rated yet?
2: We have, so we got our rating December last year. So yep. I'm really pleased for the team; they yep. um, uh, received an exceeding rating. So
1: that's excellent. Yes,
2: they're over the moon. And what a hard work!
1: You said that your occupancy is now ninety percent.
2: Yeah, so it's bumping, um, yep. bumping its head on ninety.
1: And how have you built that up? Has it just been word of mouth from the yes. community, I'm from within di- the community?
2: Yeah, I'm going to disappoint. Um, a lot of the marketing people listening, (laughs) Um, word of mouth has been really strong for us and there's some um, tight-knit communities and so word of mouth has been wonderful.
1: Okay, so with a community like this, all of my research, all of my understanding would be that the up-and-coming Jobs for um, Families package is going to be a disaster. Have you run your
2: numbers? Well, you can't run your numbers on jobs for families, um, because, and what we've always been worried about, and we've been part of the um, the coalition that pushed really hard against the activity um, test, and that's the issue um, uh, in Broadmeadows for some families. Obviously, not for um, not for all. So, yes. Hang we're, on, we're... I
1: didn't know that there was a, a coalition that. Um, pushed against the activity
2: test? Uh, a coalition. So a coalition of the willing that was trying to influence right to the uh, uh, end.
1: Oh, you mean to go from 12 hours to 15 hours?
2: Uh, well, so that was the final iteration of it and there was uh, plenty of ultimately unsuccessful work before then for it to not be included at all. Yeah. Um, so regardless of how it impacts... Um, People, We still don't know the choices people are going to make. Um, we're just doing our best to um, make sure everyone understands the rules and how to get the best oh, outcome Oh, good luck for them. with that. Yeah, so, well, it's down to individual conversations, sometimes side by side on the So computer. do
1: you know in Broadmeadows how many of your families have transitioned already?
2: Uh, I don't. Yep. Um, have that with me, sorry.
1: Ryan, do you have a sense generally across all of
2: your um, services? Yeah, making good progress, but yep. um, by no means done.
1: That's a bit scary, When, not it? Like as a businessman, as a CEO, you must say that's scary a few weeks out.
2: Sure, we. but I mean any change that's this big is going to be a bit messy, so yep. we can do what we can do and we will uh, <laughs> assume that the, the, the federal best. government will be understanding <laughs>
1: Um, do you what do you think is the danger? Do you think it's that people will not have enough hours from the activity test, or do you think that the actual fees will become unaffordable?
2: Well, particularly for broad meadows, if you're satisfying the activity test, your out-of-pocket fees will actually go down because right. the rebate um, is eighty-five percent at the lower. Um, income levels.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but it's about satisfying the activity test and people understanding all the different components of it.
3: Yep.
1: Yeah, you know,
2: the, the danger is people may be doing some of this activity and not but declaring not, it.
1: Correct. Yeah. I, I keep showing whenever I'm doing professional development with or information sessions about the subsidy, I keep showing educators the actual questions that people face when they go into that Centrelink form because they're so casual they're just kind of things like do you work do you you yeah do you have any of these things happening it would be very easy for a family member to just you know tick blithely away not understanding that that's what um, resulted in the number of hours that they get access to funded care for.
2: I agree I think it's down to family by family conversation. And is that happening? Are your yeah. directors oh, doing that? Yeah. yeah, amongst other things, yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Okay, if you had a chance to do broad meadows in another community, another low socioeconomic community, mm. would you do it again?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely, and actively looking how we can, can do find <laughs> another opportunity and contribute to this growing, um, this growing practice um, yeah. uh, area. So what would we look for? I, we would love to um, uh, have a crack at still co-located with a school but also including some integrated child and family uh, services. So from a Victorian perspective a la the um, Doveton um, yep. model or, yep. or, or similar models. Um, so we, we would love that and that's, um, that makes sense. That is just recognising that you know, in early childhood we do a really important role
4: but there and are the most some in, other roles. <laughs>
2: and the most <laughs> in important the role life. in that space exactly <laughs> is families. Yeah. And so, you know, working with both.
1: And that's something really interesting about that this conference, that they're trying to bring in both the people that work with families as well as the early childhood educators that work directly with children.
2: Absolutely, and that's why Parenting Research Centre is talking. So um, getting a broader understanding of the importance of parenting skills. And for people that work in the field, um, you know, recognising that what you do is way more important than who you are
1: is a really
2: key one for us in a broader society.
1: And um, with the conference today, first of all, are you enjoying
2: it? Yes. You know, know, I have to present.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's levels of of enjoyment. (laughs) And um, how many gallery staff would be here? Do you? Oh,
2: I think we've probably got... Close to ten, eight, 7. That's great. Something like that. Cool. That may be a bad one that you might have to edit out. How did they get 7? I don't know. I don't <laughs> no, know. I, no. I, I, really I trust you, really Lisa. i leave, leave this with you. <laughs> we don't put
1: anything to air that no <laughs> one wants. Thank you for talking to the Early Education Show. Our oh, pleasure, Lisa. Thanks. <laughs> here we are with someone I can't believe that this is actually his first time on the podcast. I think it's because we always thought he was way too busy and important to talk to us. But welcome, Anthony Samar. Hey, Lisa. <laughs> How, How are, are you?
5: I'm really good. How are you going? Are you enjoying the day?
1: Yes, it's good. mind-blowing, isn't
5: it? I, mean, I think it's been really interesting. The diverse perspectives are really interesting. Um, there's a lot lot to take in, which is good, which is really good. Yeah, it it's is. it has been really great talking to people working with children throughout the day. Yep. And, yeah, i and,
1: and have you found that the people you've been talking to are a bit overwhelmed or um, are they...?
5: Look, I think, again, I think they're asking really important questions like what does this mean in practice? Yep. You know, and I, I often think that the power of something like this is only realised when you go back to work and you start to think about translating it into your work with children. You know, there's a lot of stats on the screens, there's a lot of research, um, and this is the stuff that underpins our work. The translation is what really interests me, so I'd be interested in that ongoing conversation. That's
1: something that you just spoke about a lot in your session then, about how you can actually work with colleagues to improve quality in your service. Yeah. Tell me, you as an individual, you know, how do you get people to change? How do you get people to start working towards quality? How do you yeah. do that?
5: You know, the, the, the stories of leadership usually start with where is the leader at? But I don't think that's where a good leader starts. I think you start where your people are at, which is hard, hey, because you've got a centre of 16 adults. You're starting at 16 different places ultimately trying to get them to up place. And that's a real challenge for organisational leaders. So how do you do that? Well, in my paper today I spoke about the power of relationships and collaboration and understanding the other in in, in this process. So, you know, at the cost of sounding Mm airy-fairy, I think there's a lot more. That's okay. We hear a lot of that on the podcast. but you know, that idea of investing time talking to people, not talking at people. Like, don't throw research at them as a leader. I mean, that's a quick way of getting your staff to look at their watches, trying to escape (laughs) a staff meeting, but rather to help staff cultivate their thinking. And that's hard.
1: You were talking specifically in the sector about if someone's, you
5: know,
1: using colouring books or wants to use colouring books with children. Tell us a bit about that.
5: Okay, number one. I think it's critical to understand your own visceral reaction when you see a colouring book. And remind yourself that you probably had one when you were a child and you're still creative to some degree, and if you weren't, Probably just wasn't in your DNA to start with, okay? (laughs) Number one, does it mean we agree to the colouring in book? Absolutely not. You don't have to agree to anything. But if I want to make an institutionalised change, rather than instructing that person to burn the colouring in book, I want to look at their intent and and, and to kind of suspend my judgement as best I can and to inquire as to why the colouring in book, what was your thinking behind it, Can I take you out for a cup of tea and I can share my thinking and you can share your thinking, but until then, enjoy it. Enjoy that moment because, you know, I don't think people come to work intending to upset people. Do we slip? Yeah. Do we bump into people? Yeah. Do we inadvertently do and say things that might rob people the wrong way? Yeah. We're humans. But to invest in people in a relationship is to create great change in the long term. But you've got to be patient. And, you know, leaders are patient. And that's patience. hard. Well, it's hard <laughs> well, you've got hard to it's hard in a sector
1: m- where you don't have enough time to do that patience, where you don't have enough time to invest that um, amount of time
5: to growing in new relationships. And because- it's hard when the stories that come to the surface are all of success and you compare yourself. Yep. And you sit there like a miserable failure as you hear about the amazing work that happens out there without the story of failure... Just how great it is, and we've done well, and you see they're going. Oh, what's happening in my place? So it kind of it's, it jolts you into action. But what we don't often hear is, but it took me four years to get there, and so we have to learn to be patient. The challenge is, while you're being patient, there are children still involved. There's assessment and rating. There's reflection. There are people watching, and you know, I I, I don't think a centre that is on the road to improvement means A leader who has failed.
1: So, Anthony, thinking about you know, like you see leaders all around Australia. You travel, you know, probably more than anyone in this sector, and meet with more service leaders. What if you had to talk about the qualities that invariably makes you know that someone will be a great leader in early education care? What are those qualities?
5: Um, That would make you a great leader. I would say <clears throat> work to the edge of your competence, not to the edge of your incompetence. Like know what you're good at, yep. but then know what you're not good at. Okay, so um, swim in celebrating who you are, but also know that I've got work to do, number one. Um, understand what you know is your truth and no one else's truth and don't be a know-it-all because we can kind of be really know-it-alls. Oh, really? You know, so... Really?
1: And I No one on the early education shows like that. And
5: rarely have I seen a leader who says, "I don't know what I'm talking about." Yeah, <laughs> you know. And sometimes you have to say to your team, "I'm. I, I don't know what I'm. I don't know where I'm leading us. I just know there's something that awaits us." Yep. I think it's a leader who is absolutely committed to work alongside people, mm-hmm. not on top of them. Yep. It's hard work. Like it's a lot of hard work controlling people, <laughs> you know, and people who don't want to be controlled. What
1: about the role, like?
5: I've
1: I've examined, you know, from afar the leadership of two people um, closely. One of them would be you and one of them would be Leanne Gibbs. Um, I've watched you build your teams. I've watched you fail at some things and succeed at others. And the thing that I'd say that both of you do is inspire people. Mm. Do you think inspiration is really?
5: I think it's worked for me. But if you're not charismatic and you can't inspire, it doesn't mean you're not doing good work. <laughs> right. So it was um, the Dalai Lama who said, I am their leader, I will follow them. And often we see charismatic inspire. We, we, we link charisma to inspiration. Uh, I and it, think and there's it's, a difference. There though, is. So there you know, is so I, I think
1: you can inspire people without, without being charismatic. charismatic.
5: And that's what I think I'm trying to get at is yep. untangle those. Because when I do work with people and they say, oh, you know, I'm. I don't talk in a particular way. I can't get the crowd to dance. I mustn't be inspiring. And I look at them and I think, but you've had a huge impact here. Yeah. Your your humbleness is impactful. Your silence, when you need to be silent, is so inspiring. So I think inspiration is something. Like, you know, what does inspiration do? I think it gives people hope. Yeah. It's hopeful leadership. I think
1: it also makes people want to show up and give their best. Yeah. And if you can do that to people in this sector where, you know, wages aren't an incentive, working conditions aren't an incentive, but that hope to give your best both to children and to the other people you work with, that's really important.
5: Absolutely. And, and the thing I would caution leaders, don't whinge all the time. Because, you know, <laughs> who wants to work for a leader who, when beset by problems, broadcasts it around the place? You know that doesn't mean you don't share your challenges, but I've worked with some really whingy people, and I think you're not. There's no island th- of hope th- here. Do you
1: think the sector is more whingy than other sectors?
5: I don't know. I don't know because I've lived and grown in this sector yeah, for like okay. forty yep. years or something. I don't. I, don't know, I just
1: I go onto Facebook occasionally and just go, oh my god, why would anyone want to work here? Because so often it is a story of
5: hardship. It's hard, Too hard. Yep, and it no? is hard. It is hard. I, in some circumstance, I get it. But if that's the narrative, if, if that's the, if that's the headliner, who'd want to join that club? <laughs> like I would not want to. I would sure. want to work for a leader who says, "God, it sucks, but we can do it." Like it's the second part.
6: Yeah, this
5: is really difficult, but we'll get through it. We're not there yet but I think we have the resources to put into it to help us get there. That was horrible, but I'm surrounded with people I care for. Like, it's the second part. It's the counterfoil to a narrative of sadness and destruction and helplessness, and I think we have to live and dream and work with hope as a sector. So maybe that's where the inspiration comes from, is giving people something to want to get up and come to work for every day. And I'm not always sure that the research does that. I'm not really sure that sometimes what we think will galvanise people towards change will actually, actually get
1: them it. there. Yeah. I remember Jane Caro always says data never changed anyone. There's only two things that change people. And this was from her having an advertising background. And she said one is hope and the other is fear. Yeah. So I think you've got to create in your service the environment of hope that what we are doing will matter. And what we are doing can change to be better.
5: You know, I live by or the this... fear that
1: you'll fail, but, but, I, but
5: I live by this this slogan in my life. Change through inspiration, not change through fear. So example, which might be helpful to your listeners. Assessment and rating is coming up. Two narratives you can spin. My God, it's horrible. We better get exceeding. The centre down the road has exceeding. If we don't get exceeding, we'll get in trouble. Our numbers are low. This is gonna save our lives. Fear, fear, fear. Yeah. Okay. The other narrative. You know, there's some really good things that we do. And there's room for improvement. Assessment and rating is around the corner. Just do the best you can be. Do do the best you can do. Be the best you can be, and do that every day. And let that day be the day where we have a guest who celebrates alongside us what we do well, and who might highlight to us you know, some areas for improvement. But I believe in you and I hope you believe in yourself and let's enjoy the day. Two different narratives. And that
1: would be such a better narrative for the other staff to work under if they got that one.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But we have a history here in this world of galvanising change by making people scared. Yeah. And, you know, it's worked often well as a behaviour management strategy, but it doesn't work in the long term when it comes to working with people. people you know, the other thing I'd sure. add, Lisa, if we've got time, is yep. what, what, what allows great leaders, what enables great leaders is constantly look at yourself. Like ask yourself, would I lead me? Would I follow me? Yep. And there are days where I look and I go, no, nah, he's wacky. Oh, look, the,
1: the black bag's under your eyes. I'm I, that I bad, <laughs> But, you know,
5: but I, I, I would like yeah. to walk away every day and go, I did good for the people around right. me. Not the people yep. I'm leading but the people around me because I, I see them as colleagues. I had a staff member who texted me last night. She was so tired. She said, I love my job.
1: Aww. I
5: love when someone says, I love my job. She didn't say, I love yep. you. Yep. She said, I love my job. Yep. And my response to her was, and I love mine too. And she goes, yes, it's infectious. <laughs> and see, that to me is great leadership, yep. is, is galvanize people to be the best they can be. Yep. Because you want them every day. And, you know, I say to people, this little quote I heard once on the radio, I didn't wake up this morning to be average. <laughs> so don't wake up. If you're going to be average, stay in bed. Yeah. Stay in bed because it's not good for you.
1: Yeah. Can I just ask one other thing because there's very few people in the sector, maybe that's not fair, there's a limited number of people in the sector that are very clear about their politics, what they believe in politically and what they're fighting for. You often express that as choose a lane and stick to it.
3: Yeah.
1: How important do you believe that um, having... A political understanding of early education and care is of having a political understanding of disadvantage of social justice.
5: Yeah. If you fight for everything, you fight for nothing. Know what you stand for and be clear. You know, I remember reading some research that said people want to know what their leaders stand for and be consistent. So if you hate me, hate me Monday to Friday. Don't like me Monday hate me Tuesday, flip your politic on a Wednesday and then accommodate another politic on a Thursday and then by Friday we're all confused about who you are as a person. You know, I my politics have changed over time but they've evolved. They've become stronger as I feel more comfortable in who I am. They've become stronger as I've been less desperate for work <laughs> and I get that's a, a really lovely place to be but I You know, someone approached me at the end of just this presentation and said, the thing I love about you is you're very clear about what you believe in and it connects with people's real experiences. And I am consistent, I hope, in my politics because a leader needs to stand for something and hopefully what they stand for aligns to what the organisation stands for and then it attracts people who are buying into something collectively. But, you know, everything worth fighting for, unsettles your life.
1: (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much, Anthony, for taking this time to talk to us and um, have a good rest of the conference.
5: Thanks, Lisa. Great seeing you here.
1: In the final interview of the conference, we have an amazing lineup here, and it's one I'm really excited about. But I would have liked to have spoken to each of these people individually because they're so exciting. We've got Charlie Smith, we've got Deborah Brennan, and we've got Catherine Hayden. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just sat through your session and I want to know why they always put the session about how to act at the end of a conference.
6: <laughs> why do they do that? We should have it at the beginning and then we have the content in the middle and then there'll be like a section at the end, a bit of a sandwich approach. Why don't I we don't do know. that? I, I don't think, know. I think,
4: it's so, I think it's so that we end on a high note mm-hmm. yeah. and we're all ready to march to the barricade. In fact, <laughs> I think that's where everybody is now. now. They were out in the hall very quickly, so... I
3: expect they're on no their one's way to parliament. going home. They're all going to write their letters to their MPs <laughs> and to
6: to call their um call their federal members and make sure that the the story's getting out there. I think today also, um, I think we were a bit on notice right at the beginning that this was going to be a bit of an opportunity for thinking about action. So probably today, unlike some other opportunities for professional learning, maybe set us up with a bit of a tone of that right at the beginning. And so ending on a note where we are all thinking about action moving forward is probably a good thing thinking about the way we started. I think
4: think it seemed to me anyway a, a pretty engaged audience. So, and there, there was a lot of energy, which you often don't always get at the end of the day. So, I think somehow it, it managed to work.
1: I think some of that energy came from the three of you. I went in there very, very tired and ended up <laughs> quite inspired.
3: Well, I think we're all just kind of ready to call each other to action and to say enough's enough um, with the recent stuff in the budget and the mm. – seeming backtrack from the national quality agenda going on I think there's been a real kind of wake up call for all of us to say hey wait all the things we've achieved are they in jeopardy now Um, we know this stuff is important we know how valuable it is we know it's not just for children now but it's for children tomorrow and for the future of the country and let's do what we can to make sure we keep what we've achieved and keep building towards Mm. a world-leading service Mm. a world-leading system
4: yeah yeah, and I think um, just speaking about that session, which was facilitated by Jane Hunt, mm. Jane had given us this terrific um, um, framework for thinking about advocacy, and it distinguished between agitators, so those of us, uh, or you know, being out there with the banner and the placard and the walkout, um, innovators, the people coming up with solutions and ideas for change, and orchestrators, the people who are kind of managing managing the movement and it was really terrific way of I think of thinking about
1: And it. am I right in thinking that all three of
6: you put yourself in the agitators category? <laughs> Well, I think we decided that we'd all were all three at different times, and that at times we could be all three in half an hour, and that also at times we'd got a bit bolder and been ones a bit more sort of strident in our in our advocacy. But um, yeah, we thought we could be all three.
4: But I think it gave people um, um, it's a way of thinking that there's a place for everybody in this campaign. Not everybody is going to be comfortable being out there with with the banner and and on the march. Um, not everybody will have opportunities to develop policy, but everyone is, everyone here at the conference has a connection with, with early childhood and a role and, and a family and friends and work mm. colleagues. And so that was kind of the message is that there's, there's a place for everybody, but everybody needs to step up and find their place.
3: And I know, I know for me, I've never been a practitioner in early childhood education and care. I
1: Join the club. It's a good club.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I had postnatal depression with both of my boys. I struggled being a stay-at-home parent. I find the idea of, of what early childhood professionals do quite terrifying and daunting. But I also think it's the most important work that can be done. And so I've had to find my place in this work Um as part of seeing how important early childhood development is, what can I do? I can't be an early learning teacher, but what I can do is research and policy work and know know stuff and get noisy about it.
1: And there's a big role for people that know stuff, isn't there? We've got two academics in the room here.
6: (laughs) And I, I think too, um, as an early childhood educator myself, mm-hmm. I think there, there was a particular moment in my career where I realised there's no way that early childhood educators could do this whole thing by ourselves mm-hmm. and it wasn't just a particular um, set of qualifications or experience that added to the vast mm-hmm. repertoire of knowledge that we needed to bring to this. So I think, you know, it's really important that we build a really fantastic group of people who mm-hmm. around the notion of early childhood education mm-hmm. and care mm-hmm. and they are from multiple disciplines you know they're from the people who can write they're people who can think they're people who can analyze they're people who can advocate it's just it's just
1: hang on some of us can do all of those yes. things you
6: <laughs> can that's right i wasn't just talking about myself there i think all of you can do all of those things Multi, multi multi-talented and I, I think the other thing that uh, that i you know be good to for us to sort of put on the table is it's not that we're letting governments off the hook either I just I think sometimes we've got to be really careful that we don't in a in a um, be an advocate of change conversation and I don't think we did mm. that today we didn't say it was just all your responsibility I think it's about a collaboration, a bit of a partnership. And we've got to take that conversation to say there's actually some significant responsibility there by governments to mm. act mm. on our behalf. And us stepping up to this is actually calling governments to account in their work and having a bit of a bigger conversation around that.
4: Yeah, that's that's certainly the way I see it. And I think there was a really interesting theme throughout the day about this idea of a system and system change that um, and it's, it started off with um, with key, keynote Sharon Lynn Kagan, mm-hmm. uh, who I thought gave a fantastic talk where she distinguished between the the beautiful flowers in the garden, the individual services, and the soil that makes them thrive. The sort of the infrastructure mm-hmm. level, the funding, the financing, the the regulation. It's time to fertilise it a yeah. bit, isn't it? And I and I really loved that. Yeah. I, I hadn't come across the, um, that image of hers before and I thought about it um, all day long and I think it's it's another one that says there's a place for everybody in mm. in advocacy but and in policy and in delivery and if if any of these parts aren't um, aren't if you could this is mixing my metaphors, but well, <laughs> no. it. it's okay. <laughs> she did, yeah. <laughs> she had years and you Yeah, that's yeah. right. You've got to nourish yeah. them. you got to yeah. nourish all the bits. Yeah. You've got to yeah. fertilise them. Yeah. So every every bit is important. And I think I think there's a new thinking in early childhood now, which is much more systemic. It's not simply about my service or my LGA or even my state. I know, or my playgroup. Yeah.
6: <laughs> or my playgroup or my kindergarten or my whatever. It's all yeah. of us.
3: Yeah, yeah. And every child is a beautiful flower and a unique, beautiful mm. flower with their own petals and their own all of the stuff that's in a flower.
4: But. You've really taken it on board, <laughs> <haven't you? laughs> But I just, just keep thinking awesome. of the entropy <laughs> stage. <laughs> Stop it. Um,
3: but systems need to be mechanical. They need mm-hmm. to be sensible and they need to work together and they need to have synergies and things working strategically and, and planning together properly. So the mixed metaf- metaphor of the natural and the mechanical I actually think is really powerful mm-hmm. and true mm-hmm. because one of the things that you mentioned, Kath, about how we, we need to stop saying that we're passionate about the work because that lets government off the hook or mm-hmm. um, service providers off the hook for paying properly Um Of course, an individual connection with a child can be led by your passion and your your commitment, but a whole system can't rely on that. The whole system needs to rely on the data and the infrastructure and the governance and the funding and all of those things working together.
1: One of the things I'd just like to ask each of you is at the Early Education Show, we know we have a lot of committed activists and advocates who listen to us, apparently uh, including half of the Victorian Department of Education, so that's good. But we also have people who look at Um, people like you guys and like us and say, I could never do what you do. What is it that the person who is uh, uh, an untested advocate, the person that doesn't think they've got advocacy skills, what can they do to make sure that everyone understands the importance of early education and care?
6: Well, I think it's that it's being able to understand what all these big ideas look like in your own context to say, you know, We've heard from people to all the way through today talking about big concepts around the outcomes for children, what we know works in particular contexts, uh, evidence from overseas, et cetera, and then trying to make a really strong link to or a deep connection to what you do in your own particular site and your own particular setting and speak about that because that's what you know and that is then the way you can sell a really important idea to the community that you're right there talking to on a daily basis. And if you take an early childhood educator who works with a group of families, 35 families or something, they see them twice a day. So there's there's two times a day we have an opportunity to – Talk about some of the things that are important and I do think that we underestimate the families we work with um, in terms of an appetite that they have for us to talk about this. So speak in your own voice about things you know and make a connection with those big ideas to what you do every day.
4: I think that's a fantastic message and, and I think we, we, we talked about small – we didn't use this term but sort of small P politics and big P politics, so the, the sort of – advocacy you you do in your own context day to day with families, um, with colleagues, and so on, but also opportunities to engage with the political process and elections. Catherine, you mentioned elections coming up, mm. and I think wouldn't it be fantastic to think that every single member of parliament would be invited to their to to multiple uh, morning teas and breakfast meetings in the, in their electorate mm. in the lead up to the uh, next federal election? Uh, and be besieged by parents and educators saying we really need you to fund our services adequately, and to uh, to make sure that the
1: and to get rid of the activity test.
4: Uh, well, and to have a yeah, absolutely. The- I think the activity test issue will explode um, from July onwards. So there's really great opportunities for all sorts of political engagement. I think that that families and um, and services and educators can c- consider.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I would absolutely agree with what both Deb and Kath have said, and also would just add that if someone thinks that they can't get up in front of a room and talk, well, I can't get up in front of a room of young children and lead them in developmentally appropriate pedagogies toward their learning opportunities. <laughs> so we need to do what we can with what we've got where we are. And um, everyone has an opportunity to be the best that they can be and to talk to the people they have contact with. and. Um, we have the opportunity to know so much stuff in this day and age. It can be daunting and it's great to have um, information out there like the early education show, like mm-hmm. Deb's report, that takes that complex stuff and makes it something ev- that everyone can access. And, yeah, be informed, speak in your own voice. I, I just want people to great look message. at Cath's <laughs> slides. Cath's <laughs> <laughs> slides yeah. from that session yeah. I think are a great how-to for everyone.
1: Yeah, we've actually heard that we can have the audio from okay, all of your sessions. So listen to all three of you <laughs> on the early education show soon. Can I just ask Deb, you one final question to you since you wrote the report? We seem to have gone backwards a bit in some areas. Mm. Are you a bit yeah,
4: I was. I've been ve- was very disappointed to see the Commonwealth withdraw from the uh, the National Partnership Agreement on 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 quality, um, and that was uh, quite a quite a um, a significant retrograde step. Um, and as yet, of course, we haven't seen a a positive response to our recommendation about sustained adequate funding. But um, it's it's clear to me from the conference here today that that people aren't going to give up on these, uh, these, um, these goals. I think there's going to be a lot more advocacy, a lot more... Um, pressure so yes it is it is disappointing but look I've been around the traps for a long time and I retain my optimism and I'm certainly not giving up
1: (laughs) good on you and I'm sure that's true for all of you thank you all for what you do in advocating for children on a daily basis
6: right back at you Lisa thank you for all (laughs) your work (laughs) thank
1: you
0: So that's it for this week. Thanks to Andrew, Anthony, Charlene, Catherine and Deb for taking the time on a packed day to speak with Lisa. Speaking of conferences, I'd like to remind everyone about two other upcoming events that we've uh, somehow wrangled invitations to. In July, all three of us will be at the 14th Social Justice and Early Childhood Conference recording our first ever live episode, Technical Gods Willing. The conference is on Saturday, 28th of July. And finally, in October, all three of us will be boarding planes up to Darwin for the Little People Big Dreams Conference, and that will be on Saturday, 13th of October. If you're attending either of those events, come up and say hi. Until next week, goodbye. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leanne McNicholas, and produced by Leanne McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com And while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the support the show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.